All right, well, join me. And we are in Exodus, and we're going to cover some ground this morning, Uh, six chapters, and we're coming to the end. And this wasn't merely um, expositor's fatigue, Uh, but I think this will prove helpful to summarize where we've been, because there's actually a lot of repeat material in a way, and we'll talk about what that is and why that is. But I titled the sermon this morning, The Way to Worship, and what becomes evident as the people come together to build this tabernacle finally, so God can live with them and He can worship or be worshiped by them, uh, there's a right way to do it. And just that phrase, right way to do it, it just got, got me thinking about something, and that's this. You know, perhaps one of the biggest things you might discover when you're first married is that there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. And sometimes you didn't know there was any difference. Sometimes you didn't know there was another way. And you're quite sure there shouldn't be another way because the other way is dumb until your spouse does it that way. Or your spouse corrects you for doing it wrong, whatever it is. When you've been doing it that way, obviously the correct way your whole life, from folding your shirts or to loading the dishwasher or dressing that tube of toothpaste, which we all know you might as well grab towards the top and just squeeze there because it's faster anyway. But such mundane things, they can give rise to marital feuds, thankfully, Cooler heads prevail, grace gets extended, and we learn to live with one another's quirks, and my wife endures many, I'll say that. (laughs) But in the end, these are just preferences. uh, I don't think there's really a wrong way, morally, to organize your sock drawer or to fold a t-shirt. But... When it comes to the worship of the Almighty Holy God, oh, there is a right way. This is not a preference issue about how you can worship the true God. We don't have an option to make it up as we go either. And we certainly don't have the freedom just to do it how we think He wants it. God wants to be worshiped. He actually draws near, and He's here even now. If you're His, He indwells you, and He gathers the praise and gathering of His saints. He is here. He wants to be worshiped, but He wants to be worshiped His way because He is Lord. And though, as we get to all the formality of the old covenant and the sacrificial system for Israel, our way of worship is much different, but the heart principles are very much the same. I'm going to draw some of those out for you as we turn to this text this morning. But the sum of it is this. God draws near to us in worship. He draws near to us that we would honor Him with our worship, that we would ascribe worth to Him, that we would tell of His greatness and His glory. This is what it means that we worship Him. But this means we have to worship Him His way, not a way of our own making. And what does it mean then to worship God His way? Well, we are going to talk about four different demands of God-honoring worship, four demands of God-honoring worship. And the first is this, is that we would give to God from the heart, that our worship would be sincere. And we'll see that in the majority of the text we had read, which is chapter 35, verses 1 to 29. But the first demand we find, our worship needs to be sincere, needs to be heartfelt. It can't just be in externals, it has to be moved coming out of our heart. And that shows here so clearly as Israel is called to give of their goods, to give of their treasures, to give those back to God, that they can finally build and construct this tabernacle that we've been studying now in some way for months. 
um, here in Exodus. But finally, to build up this tent where God's going to live right with his people, right in the midst. And let's pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 35. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the contribution, gold, silver, bronze, and he goes on to list these different items. These are the kind of things that are going to be required if they're going to build this ornate tent just as God described and prescribed in chapters 25 through 31. It had to be built a certain way, and these are all the resources needed to build it. You need precious metals, silver and gold. You need valuable linens and cloths. Remember those? Special wood even, special concoctions of oils and other things and precious stones. But all of these are treasures. All of these are valuables. And there's being asked that a contribution is made of those things from the people. But I want to highlight for you, this is an ask. This is not a tax. This isn't a levy. This isn't a subscription fee to get to be with God. He's saying, ask the people if they want to give and have them give. There's nothing forced about this. And actually, to go back to verse 5, it's a requirement that it's not forced. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the contribution. If you're not willing and wanting to give, then don't, is kind of the idea. I don't want your giving. If it's not from a willing, generous heart. And there in verse 5, that expression, generous heart, that's a fine translation. But I think the word willing more captures what the Hebrew word's getting at. That is, it's really about a desire. It's not merely being bountiful, which we think we might think with generous, but it's, it's a desire to give, a want to give, uh, a desire for this. You want this thing. You want God to be with you, so you're going to give to it. That's the sense. But as it unfolds, there's not only a call for those who are willing to give, but it's a call also to those who are willing to work, to give up their resources, their skills, to make this tent happen. So look down, we're going to cheat a little bit and look into chapter 36, but look at chapter 36, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel, and he called Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put the skill, we'll talk about that, but everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work, you see. Those are the ones who are going to come. Their hearts are not only moved to give, but many of those in the craftsmen, their hearts were moved to work, to do Even their labors were motivated by this reality that God would be with them. This was the call for the people to respond to the character of God with them. What has Israel seen? Right? God redeemed them. He brought them to Mount Sinai to be with him. This is all sounding great. But then what did they do? They sinned against God. They built the golden calf. God's ready to wipe them out, which he would do in his justice. But then God shows mercy, right? He says, but I'm the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So I'll still be with you as stiff-necked and rebellious though you are, right? And what's the people's response to that kind of mercy? Well, they're invited to respond by giving, and they're going to give of their treasures. They're going to give of their, of their means. They're going to give of their skills. Responding to this God of grace. Look at this. 
verse 20 through 22 of chapter 35. So go back to chapter 35. Actually, pick it up in chapter 35, verse 21. So when the call goes out, it says, and they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service, service and for the holy garments. I mean, do you see the theme there, though, right? And they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose heart moved him, stirred him, literally carried up his heart to move it to give. Their hearts were lifted up to let go of their things and put them at the feet of the Lord. This is what they really wanted to do. This is what they wanted to do in light of God's great grace to them. And their love, their hearts so wanted to do this, and they so overwhelmingly did it, that Moses has to say, stop giving. That is on the things that nonprofits never say. Stop giving. How many of the letters you got in December from the nonprofit charitable organizations, you opened it up and there was no envelope in there? It said, We have too much. Nobody. But look at this. Chapter 36, verse 5. Chapter 36, verse 5. And the craftsmen, is the idea, said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work. So, going on, the people were restrained from giving, verse 7, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work, comma, and more. We got more than enough. This is wild. Again, this is things that never get said. I have too much money. Just stop giving me more. But that's how extraordinary their generosity was and how evident their passion and love for this idea that God would dwell with us, that he'd be with us. They want to honor him in their giving. Okay. Could that be seen in your giving to the Lord's work? For you. Say especially to the local church. That place where, whatever your local church is, that place where you probably most intimately connect with the ministry of God. What does your giving look like to there? Because I'll say, the elders are Grace Bible Church. We don't know. Let me preface this. We don't know. I can look and see your faces, okay? I don't know a face to how much you give and to a name. I don't know those things. The elders, we keep those from ourselves. We don't want to know. Our treasurers know. But we can know the trends. We know the numbers. Does this make sense? I don't want to know that so-and-so gives a lot or doesn't give much, that anyway it makes it tempting to me to curb my ministry of the word. I just want to, with a free mind, tell you what it says, right? So we keep those things from us, but we know the trends. And as we know the trends and look at the trends at giving a Grace Bible Church, well, it's not all encouraging. It's not all bad by any stretch, but it's not all encouraging either, Okay. Biggest picture, and let me start here, we praise God, and we thank you for your faithful contributions to Grace Bible Church, namely that we met budget, in some sense, easily in 2023. That's a credit to the Lord's work in your heart, and we are so thankful. And also, what I'm going to say next doesn't come from, oh, we're about to do a building project, or we're short on funds. doesn't come from that. I'm coming to you as a shepherd who's saying, well, your wallet's a good window into your heart, so let's take a look. Okay, but here it is. Even though we met budget, praise God, 
But there's a but, right? Well, here it comes. Just as one data point, did you realize or would you have guessed that 75%, three quarters of our annual budget is floated by just 30% of the families that give to grace? So that means only a small fraction is carrying almost all three quarters of the whole annual budget here at Grace. Now, is that fair or is that in balance? No, it's not. Okay, so how much should I be giving then, Rick? What percentage? When you think about percentage, maybe the word that comes to mind is tithe. We're in the Old Testament, we're in Exodus. Okay, is it about a tithe then? Is it about giving, which is a tithe, is 10%. That'd be 10% of your annual income. Well, let me tell you this. In the New Testament, there is no such requirement, nor is there any such limit either. It's astonishing to me. These were, in the Old Testament, all of this generosity we're seeing, these people did not have the Holy Spirit living within them and helping them, and they gave this generously. Honestly, I'd submit to you, as an elder was telling me in the foyer just a moment ago, that 10% shouldn't be like the the, 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 the highest bar ever that a mature Christian reaches. Seems like, given even the example of the Israelites here, that should be like the start. I'll leave that there for a moment. But let me say this. In the New Testament, there is no limit, nor is there any requirement. Give 10%, give 15 whatever. None of that's in the New Testament. You know what the, the model of the New Testament is? It's just like this. How much should you give? Give what you want. Give what you want. That's what you should give. Well, how much is that? How much do you want to give? Now, with that said, to gauge our heart, I would still suggest that 10% is a good metric, based on the Old Testament, to, to, to compare ourselves to. It's a good benchmark to, to test our hearts against, to see where might we be, okay? So, let me also add another caveat. The Lord doesn't want you to give what you don't have. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You give as you've been prospered, okay? Nevertheless, how have you been prospered? Your giving should correspond to that. Well, how have you been prospered? Well, I don't know what each one of you make. And I don't want to, frankly. But let's put it like this. We live in Chesterfield County. The median household income in Chesterfield is $95,000 annually. So if you make as much like your neighbors and you were giving 10% at maybe that's the base, you'd be giving $9,500 a year. How does your family's giving compare to that benchmark? Is it far less? And from the figures, I'll say from the elders, for most of you, it is. Now, why is that? Is it because you have not been prospered as much as your neighbors have? That very well might be, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he doesn't choose many of the rich, okay? But is that your case? I don't know. And I'm not asking these things because I know or need to know. The Lord knows. And I'm just saying, let's be honest. How much has he prospered you? How much should you give? 
So if it's not about how much he's prospered you, that is, you just don't have that kind of available funds, you've been unwise and strapped yourself with debt. And so you don't even think you can give, and you're robbing yourself of the blessing of being able to give. Or you just generally live beyond your means, trying to attain to a standard of living just like your neighbors when they don't give 10% of their income somewhere else. Or are you just squandering your money on wrong things? Namely, yourself, your comforts, and so forth. Because here's the thing. If you don't give much, the New Testament call is, or diagnosis, or even here, it's because you don't want to. That's why you don't give. You allot your monies to then other things, other loves, other priorities. And didn't Jesus teach us where your treasure is, there your heart will be? In other words, you can go look in your pocketbook or your online bank statement and you can find out what you love. You invest in the things you treasure most. Now, if you're suddenly convicted about this, and like, oh man, maybe I don't want to give. I don't have the willing to give. Why is that? What's going on? Well, it Evidently, my, my want-to is lacking. And why? Why is my want-to so deficient that I would keep holding on to my monies and not be generous and not give? Well, let's get maybe some help again from Israel. Why was their heart moved to give? And that's so overwhelmingly and generously. Why? Because this God of mercy and grace forgave them and wanted to be with them, and they were just overjoyed so they couldn't but give back to him. And brothers and sisters, if that was true about old covenant Israel, where God lived in a tent and you could never see him, how much more do we have in Jesus Christ, don't we? I mean, think about this. The price of the Son of God was paid for your sin so you can be reconciled to God. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace, the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so then be generous. If he has been so good and generous to us, how can we not be that to others? Is really the call. Namely, just the thanks and praise and gratitude, even shown in our giving of our skills, of our time, of our resources, our monies. And if you will give, Start putting your heart and your wallet there. Your time, your heart investment, your heart will continue to follow. Because there is no thing, no one, no purpose that you treasure more than Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. So we got to give to God from the heart. Second, we need to serve God with the Spirit's skill. And we're going to pick this up in verse 30 of chapter 35 and really run all the way through chapter 38 to the end. But beyond just a willingness to serve God, we need equipment. We need help to do it. Even in the physical task we would do, we need the help of the Holy Spirit that we would get to serve God as He wants. We need the competence given from Him. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this kind of talk shouldn't surprise you at all. Because the New Testament speaks a good deal about God's Spirit equipping us for ministry. That's why you might hear about the spiritual gifts. But understand, 
that kind of language, the filling of the Spirit and so forth, is very rare in the Old Testament. Only a few times has it talked about that the Holy Spirit fills somebody for any reason it do- He does. It's for a particular work and mission, just like here, namely, building the tabernacle. Look at chapter 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and it goes. So what's going on? God calls this man to the work, and then he equips him for the work to do it just as God had said. And notice what he equips him with. It says, I give you my spirit. The spirit of God fills this man, Bezalel. And when he has the spirit, what does he have then? Going back to verse 31. He's filled him with the spirit of God to give him the skill, the intelligence, the knowledge, and all craftsmanship to devise these artistic designs. God gives Bezalel the Holy Spirit so he can know exactly, he has the know-how to do and make this tabernacle just like God designed and required. It's like the Holy Spirit becomes suddenly a whole library of YouTube how-to videos on how to build this tabernacle. Now, of course, the tedious work of I mean, what's Bezalel have to do to form these things? The cherubim and all of the, the gold threaded through the linens and all of this. This is tedious work. It's art. You can't do this fast. So if it was going to fall just on one man, this is going to take a long, long time. But God not only gave Bezalel the skill to do this special work, but he gave him the capacity to also teach and instruct others that they might do the work. Look at verse 34 of chapter 35. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. So on these two people, God had put an aptness to do the work, but more than this, a desire and capacity to actually teach the work. So there can be a whole set of craftsmen at hand, an army of inspired, God-taught craftsmen to do the work God has called them to do. Such that, look over to verse 1 of chapter 36. Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how, they have the know how, to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And so we have that this is not going to be left to man's imagination, ingenuity, nor incompetence. God has the call, he has the design, painstaking detail, and he's equipped Bezalel and Aholiab to do it and to teach others to do it, again, just as God has said. And from there, as these men are then equipped, what you find as we work through the rest of chapter 36 and then into chapter 37 and into chapter 38 is just the spirit-inspired craftsmen building everything just as God had said. So that's why we're going a little faster at this point. Because we studied this in some detail when we went through Exodus 25 through 31. We had all of those details listed. We had what they were, was their significance. And in a way, those chapters, Exodus 25 through 31, were saying, this is how you should build it. And now we have what? This is how they built it. But they didn't do this alone. God wanted it done to spec. 
And so he gave his spirit to make sure it happened just as he requires. He called them to the task, but he didn't leave them to themselves. He equipped them for the task, and the Holy Spirit was the equipment. Now, though it's quite rare in the Old Testament to have the Holy Spirit filling someone or coming upon someone to do any kind of work, you need to understand that in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, this is like the defining feature of the people of God. Is that God's Spirit, because all sins put away, God comes to live inside of you. You become the temple of God. And, and this is the great comfort we have, that the Old Testament saints, generosity aside, they didn't have. If you are in Christ this morning, Christ is in you by His Spirit. And that means the Spirit is equipping you to put off sin and walk in obedience. Galatians chapter 5. That also means the Holy Spirit's in you to give you assurance about your future hope and inheritance in heaven. That's Ephesians chapter 1. The Spirit's in you to comfort you in your grief, to pray for you when you don't know how to pray, Romans chapter 8, to teach you in your heart, 1 John chapter 3, to bring you to faith, conviction, and obedience. It is a glorious thing that God lives in us. But the strongest parallel here when the Spirit comes upon you at conversion, you've been simultaneously equipped and called for ministry. And that's because that Spirit of God lives right within you. Such that Paul tells us this. This is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Note that. And then Paul adds this, verse 7, to each, that is each individual member, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So if you are a member of Christ's church, that is, you've been converted, you've come in trust, to, trust in Christ, you've also been simultaneously commissioned unto ministry. Whether you realize it or not this morning, if you're a Christian here this morning, you've been born by the Holy Spirit, born again, that means one, God lives inside of you, two, He has gifted you, equipped you supernaturally with the necessary skills to serve and bless His church. And as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, for the common good, which Paul goes on to explain. What is that? It's just edifying the body. What is that? That's building up the body, making, helping us, that is, as a church, think more like Christ and live more like Christ. If you're a, if you're a, a Christian, that's what His Spirit has gifted you to do, to help your brothers and sisters think like Christ and live like Christ. And so if that's what the Spirit has come upon you to do, if you're not serving then or trying to find your giftedness and how you might use it, I mean, what can we say? You're being a poor steward of this gift He's entrusted to you. See, God put you in this local body, in this expression, to help in this expressed way. And if you're not serving using that gift, the whole body hurts for it. I mean, you know how this goes. Our brother was talking about this the other night at New Year's Nachos, we called it. But it's this very point. You know what it's like to have a twisted ankle, right? Or, or a jammed finger, or you had a surgery, so you had to lay off that foot or that shoulder. 
your body gets on, but it gets on with difficulty. And the same thing's going on when a member is not using their gifts. We might get on, but the whole body suffers for it. Okay, but I don't know where to serve, what to do, uh, where to plug in, what do I do? That's a great question. That's the right question. But unlike some churches they, who might go out of their way to make ministries and programs so that people can be like cogs in a wheel and they just fit right in, plug and play kind of thing, uh, Grace Bible Church, we don't do that. And, and somewhat intentionally so. Why? Here's the intention behind it. We understand this. God gifts people to do ministry. He doesn't give ministries of the church that you have to plug people into. Do you see the difference? So you don't need a title. You don't need some kind of position to do what? Spiritual good to your brothers and sisters for the common good. To help us think more like Christ and live more like Christ. You can do that in a whole host of ways. Well, what are some? I'm still struggling, Rick. Well, try this first before you come ask me. Number one, ask the Spirit who's gifted you. Ask Him to help you. But then two, and you can come ask me or any of the elders, find needs and try and meet Him. And if you've been gifted for it, you'll like it and people will say thank you. And if you're not gifted, they might still say thank you, but you probably won't like it too much. And that can be from very spiritual things, the way the Spirit gifts. So prayer, faith, teaching, discipleship groups, leading through the Word, awesome. But stop for a moment. Look at this text. What were these people gifted to do? They were craftsmen. They were being equipped by the Spirit even in resident art skills, workman skills, organization skills, to out of their love and generosity make things like that. It's incredible. Because of the love for Christ and for the church. That gives Him glory and it encourages our hearts. There's not one way to get at this. How can I help my brothers and sisters in very physical, tangible ways, in spiritual ways, in any way, to think more like Christ and walk more like Christ? That's what we're after. But it's going to take the Spirit's skill to do it. Okay, third. We obey God by the book. This is how we honor God in our worship. We do it by the book, as we say. And that needs to be true about our worship. And so what's next as we turn to chapters 39 through 40 we have this seemingly tedious reiteration of all of these details, specifically about the priest's clothes. And again, it's like what we saw before. We went through all these details in Exodus chapter 28. I think I did two whole sermons on it, for example. Go back and listen. I was encouraged, but anyway. And that's almost in verbatim repeated all here in chapter 39. And I can imagine if I'm Moses, I'm like writing this out by hand. I'm like, go back to chapter 28 and see there, period, right? But he doesn't do that. He lays it all out. Again, line after line, detail after detail about the priest's ephod and breastpiece and stones and the, the robe and the coats and the holy headband. It's all listed there in detail in the finest points again. Why? 
Why the painstaking detail? What does it suggest to you? They didn't look over the details. They did it just like God said. And if that wasn't already clear, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 39. Kind of setting the stage for this. Exodus 39, verse 1. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron, the first high priest. But note this, the end of verse 1. As the Lord has commanded Moses. How did they do it? Just as God had commanded them to. And then in verses 2 to 5, it speaks of Bezalel making the ephod. And then we read the end of that. Look at the end of verse 5. As the Lord commanded Moses. And then he goes to prep the stones that had Israel's names on them that were on the shoulder pieces for this ephod. And we see there in the end of verse 7, how did they do it? As the Lord commanded Moses. Can you guess where this is going? Look with me. Verse 21. He makes the breast piece. And what does it say at the end? How did he do it? As the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 26, he makes the robe. How does he do it? As the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 29, he had the coat and the sashes. How did he do it? As the Lord commanded Moses. Then there was that cool holy headband that he wore. In verse 31, how did he do it? As the Lord commanded Moses. And if you haven't caught it already, he's going to reiterate it. He's going to frame for you how this whole thing happened. Look down to verse 42 of chapter 39. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. As Moses saw all the work, behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded Moses, so they'd done it, period. Then Moses blessed them. How did they do it? As the Lord commanded Moses. That's how they did it. Just as God said. And then next, what happens here as we turn to chapter 40 Everything is prepared and set before Moses. And as we turn to chapter 40, God tells Moses, all right, you get to now build it. It's kind of like, here's your Lego box. We open it up. All the pieces are there. Now let's put it together. And Moses, you're the man to do it. And guess what? He's not going to do it however he wants. He's going to follow the directions that the Lord gave him. Such that, look at verse 16 of chapter 40. We have in that verse summarizing how Moses puts this all together. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did it. Well, what did he do? He set up the tent, verse 19, and what does it say at the end? As the Lord commanded Moses. And then he put the ark behind the veil. How did he do it? Verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. And the bread was put on the table, verse 23, as the Lord commanded Moses. And then he had the lampstand, verse 25, as the Lord commanded Moses. And there was the altar of incense, verse 27, as the Lord commanded Moses. And the altar of sacrifices, in verse 29, as the Lord commanded Moses. And the basin for watching, verse 32, as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, how was this done? But as God had just commanded them, they did it. Just as he said, they took the clear commands of God and they did them. Just that simple. And what was their reward for it? What happens in response to this? Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, we'll talk more about this, okay? We'll have to clarify this. It wasn't, well, they obeyed so much, so then God's finally going to be in relationship with them. That's not how the relationship started. Remember how it started? God said, I'm getting you out of Egypt. And he did all the work. 
So relationships already begun, but how do they enjoy the fruits, the closeness of that relationship? Oh yeah, it's by obedience to what God said. So you can't get around this. It's not even in so much that they did it all in the precise external way for its own sake. That is, it's not in the frame and the nature of all the directions. It's really about the heart of it. Will you take God at his word and do it? Because later on, you're going to have King Saul, remember him? He was told to wipe out. I believe it was the Amalekites. And he doesn't do it. And instead, they take the choicest lambs and they sacrifice them to God. But King Saint, or not King, Prophet Samuel has to come up and he rebukes King Saul. And he says, hey, why do I hear sheep bleeding and calling? They were supposed to be dead. What have you done? Oh, well, the people wanted to make sacrifices and praise to God. Well, what did Samuel tell him then? You know what? To obey is better than sacrifice. Do what I tell you. Don't go your own direction and make it up. The point is, all the rites, all the rituals, all the services and practices, maybe superstitions, you can pile them up all you want, but if you will not obey him just in your daily life, whatever you think you're doing is worship, it's not. So that's what's over your life. If they were to write the chronicle of your life, it would be, he did it just as God commanded, period. And we're not talking about perfection. Just the direction of your life. Is it obedience? You just take God what he says and you do it. Now, some of you in here, that's not the case, but it's because you don't even know what he says. Maybe you're new in the Christian faith or you're investigating this. Well, the invitation is don't make it up. Go by the book. Okay. But some of us, we're not studying it because we don't want to know what's there. You've been there, like you're really convicted. You know there's some sin you're kind of holding on to. So you're like, mm, I'm pretty sure I'm be, going to be convicted if I go to that book. We'd rather just assume that we have a sense for what God wants instead of actually going to the book and finding out. Ignorance is not bliss on this one. And again, we're not talking about perfection, but the direction of your life. Is it towards obedience, which is simply, God had said it, I'm going to do it. Now, we're all at different places in that, I would assume. I know that to be the case. So, what's just one place this week? You can grow in obedience. God has said it pretty clearly. You know, I think for many of, us, many of us in here, though, we don't need to get necessarily more of what God has said. And we need his word, obviously. But we would do well just to take some of the few things we know and start doing them well, right? Amen. So what's something just this week, one way, what, how can you be more of a doer than merely a listener? Change that today. Resolve. Worship him in light of that now. And you can ask the Holy Spirit's help to get you there, right? the joy of the new covenant. Now that's true corporately, or excuse me, that's true personally, like that we have to apply the word. That's true corporately too. That's true for us as a church. We as a church have to be a church that goes by the book. So I just want to take a moment and explain that that's, that's what we do when we gather at worship. 
We do it by the book. We try to. The elders didn't just sit around thinking, oh man, how can we make this really interesting this week? Obviously. What do we do? We say, well, what has God commanded us to do in the scripture? And you know what's at the center of it? It has to be the book, the preached gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are commanded that way. We preach the word. Why? Because we're commanded to do it. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, preach the word. So we preach the word. We also pray the word, and we use God's word to do it. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And we also read the word, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Why? Because it says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. That's what we do. And we also sing the word. Why? Colossians three sixteen. let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs about the word. Oh, and by the way, we also show forth the word in two particular ways, those ordinances of baptism and Lord's table. And remember that? We talked about it last week. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. But that also explains why we don't do interpretive dance. You don't find that in the New Testament. You don't find live polls to get your opinions on stuff. You're not going to have virtual guest preachers or what I read about this week, interactive prayer maps in a service. What is that? It's a like a church service scavenger hunt. Sounds fun? Maybe. But it's not in the book, so we ain't going to do it. Amen. 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 <laughs> Amen. That's right. We would do well, instead of trying to take suggestions, to take his. Amen. All right. Finally, we approach God by the blood. If we're going to honor God in our worship, this is, where we, this is the highlight, really, of the book. We have to approach by the blood. And that's the culmination of this book in many ways, for God finally is with His people, and it's a glorious thing. Look at verse... And the glory of the Lord of chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He's with them, and he's going to lead them through the wilderness. He's going to lead them to the promised land. He's going to guide every step of the way, verses 36 through 38. I mean, this is great. This is what we've been waiting for, to be with God. And then verse 35 comes in like a wet blanket over all of it, it seems. Look at verse 35. Well, verse 34, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Why do I say this is like a wet blanket? Not even Moses can go in there. God's getting this close. And even the most favored guy on the planet can't even get close. What kind of relationship is this? I mean, Moses is the one who speaks to God at the burning bush, right? Moses is the one who did all the miracles that got them out of Egypt. Moses is the one who hears God's name. Moses is the one, he gets so intimate with God, his face literally shines like a flashlight, the glory of God. And not even he can go be with God. Who then can get close is the question you have to ask. Who then can have a real communion in relationship with God. Who can get close to God? How is that possible? 
And that's the nagging questions you reach the book of Exodus's end. Who can get near God? Well, what's the answer? So far in the Old Testament, the answer is you turn the page. You get the book of Leviticus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So Moses, you can't come in. This is verse 1 of Leviticus 1. The Lord calls to Moses out from the tent, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from your flock. In other words, you're going to come near, it's true, but you're going to come with blood. you got to come with a sacrifice still. Sin's a real thing, and it has to really be dealt with. Bring your blood, bring your covering, bring your Passover lamb, bring your substitute. That is how we, sinners though we are, get next to and close to this holy God. And this is even still a picture of what happens in heaven. Do you get this? What's the big treasure of heaven? It's not even that you live unceasingly. It's that you get to see God. And do you know how the Son of God is pictured so often in the book of Revelation that has views of heaven? Do you know what he's pictured like? He's pictured like something you really need really bad. You know what it is? You need a lamb. You need a lamb who took your sins and took your wrath. God's son's pictured in Revelation, yes, as a king reigning from a throne, but he's also pictured as a lamb. And it's as the lamb he receives praises like this from Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There reigns in heaven the risen Lamb of God, standing, ready to receive all who would approach God through his blood. And he's never leaving. And he's there to be our covering. He is there so when the glory of God comes, he says, Rick, come on in. And if he's done that for us, what hesitancy do we have to draw near to him? Let's do that. Let's pray together. Father, what a marvelous thing that we find you're a God of mercy. You're a God of grace. You're a God of forgiveness and sacrifice. And so may our great gratitude and love for what you've done in Christ move us to honor you in our worship and the way we serve and the way we give and what we do. May it all be done in praise to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ in whose name alone we pray.